You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. Hi, this is Kim, and welcome to the 18th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today, I want to talk with you about why people choose misery. One of the most beautiful and challenging things about developing a practice of choice theory is learning that you are responsible for the choices you make in your life. This is 100% freeing as well as 100% frustrating. As a helping professional, have you ever encountered clients who seem to revel in their misery? Are you a person who finds they're miserable most of the time? This podcast is both for helping professionals as well as individuals who are experiencing misery. It's not that they're having any fun. Misery is miserable after all. But if you understand choice theory, you realize that all behavior is purposeful. Even in the most unfortunate circumstances, people gain some benefit from their misery. Most helping professionals want to help alleviate the pain, but are stymied by how to bring their clients out of their misery. It's important to help clients first understand that they mostly created their own misery and they did it for a reason. It's freeing because you realize you are in the driver's seat. If it is to be, it is up to me. It's frustrating because you can no longer ethically blame anyone else for your choices. People are going to do what they do and circumstances will be what they are. But you are responsible for your responses to those people and in those situations. This is not blaming the victim by assigning fault or shame to the subconscious choices people make. We should celebrate a person's resiliency in finding behavior that has at least some positive effect in a horrible situation. Simultaneously, we need to help people understand that their subconscious created this adaptive behavior for a reason. After understanding the purpose of their misery and the fact that it's a choice, people will often be able to let that misery go to make room for more adaptive behavior. If they don't believe there's a more adaptive behavior, then they can give themselves permission to consciously stay in their misery while acknowledging the benefit they're receiving from it. In my work, I have uncovered 10 reasons for choosing misery. There may be others, but this is what I've come up with so far. Number one is retention. It seems to be the best way to keep someone or something you've lost active in your mind. It is no longer part of your daily existence, so you continue to ruminate about the loss, keeping it present. Yes, this causes pain, but it's preferable to the total absence of what's been lost. I've seen this when a client loses a person to death or divorce, and I've seen it when people are laid off or fired from a job they loved. When someone dies, you may have the tendency to talk about the last time you saw them, conversations you've had, and even people you know in common. You may reach out to those people to share the news as well as some of your memories of that person. You'll look through your pictures to remember moments you've shared with them. You may listen to music or watch movies that remind you of that person. All of this prolongs your misery. This is fine if you're choosing it, but I'd like to help people who are ready to let go of this misery and find a healthy way to keep that person alive and active in your life. Yes, they are physically gone. But what can you do to remember them in a way that won't cause you so much pain? After my husband died in 1999, I was in a lot of misery until I discovered a fitting way to memorialize him. 
My husband was a wrestler who took second place in Pennsylvania high school wrestling his senior year. Being a serious wrestler is a little like being a Marine. You never stop. We created the Dave Olver Wrestling Scholarship for a high school senior who was going to wrestle in college. In the beginning, I would award the scholarship and get to talk about my husband. Now my children give the scholarship. It's a beautiful thing that brings warm and loving memories, not grief. Two months after my husband died, I got a call from my college roommate who had just lost her eight-year-old son. He passed away in his sleep, and to this day, no one knows the reason why he died. She called me and asked me what to do. I suggested she find happy ways to memorialize her son, and she found both a private and a public way to do that. Privately, she dug a pond in her backyard and stocked it with tree frogs, as that was something her son really loved. She also bought a bench that had four-inch ceramic tiles, and she created a memorial service with people who were close to her son. Everyone got a tile and paint, and the people came together and painted a tile with some memory that they had of Ryan. It created this beautiful bench of memories, and whenever my friend wanted to be close to him, she would go sit on that bench, looking out over the pond, and listen to the tree frogs. Publicly, she lived in Houston, and she knew that the Houston Zoo had a tree frog exhibit that she wanted them to name after her son, Ryan Cartwright. They told her this was possible, but it was very expensive. I don't remember how much, but I'm thinking it was about $50,000. She worked for Exxon at the time, and if she were able to raise half the money, Exxon offered to match it. Well, I contributed to that fund, and so did many others, because my friend did get halfway to 50000 or whatever the number was. Exxon was true to their word, matched it, and now if you go to the Houston Zoo, you'll see a plaque the Ryan Cartwright tree frog exhibit. Number two is attention. It gets you the attention you desperately want. When you're miserable, people tend to notice, especially when people care about you. They want to do or say something that will help you feel better. You don't set out to manipulate people into loving behavior, but that can be the result of misery. I would suggest that if you need some attention because of your pain, all you need to do is ask for it. You can skip over the misery and call someone you trust and ask this person to listen to your story, or better yet, just tell them what you want from them. Do you want them to come over and spend the night? Do you want them to watch Netflix and chill with you? Do you want to go out somewhere and drink yourself into a coma? Instead of immersing yourself in the misery, think about what you want most from a person in your life that could help you. Ask that person who will have your back to do or say what you need most. Number three is help. Misery can get you assistance from others when you're unable or unwilling to ask for help directly. Sometimes things happen that can cause you to feel overwhelmed and maybe unable to tackle what life has put in front of you. You can fast forward through the overwhelm and misery by recognizing what is driving the misery. Do you need help? What is it you need? Is there someone in your life that could help you? Why don't you just ask for what you need? Sometimes people hold the misery because they have such a problem asking for help. Subconsciously, they would rather portray a sympathetic victim than take charge and delineate exactly what they need. There's nothing wrong with this as long as you know you're choosing it. Own your choices and do not apologize for them. Number four is control. 
Misery can control others by causing them to feel guilty or sorry for you so they become more willing to do what you want. Emotions can be tools by which we control the people around us. I know there are people who deliberately use their emotions to manipulate others, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm thinking of people who do this subconsciously. Some emotions that can be used are jealousy, anger, depression, fear, and every variation thereof. People often respond to misery with guilt. This subconscious strategy will have no effect on someone who doesn't feel responsible, but using your emotions in this way is to communicate to people that you aren't happy and the people around you should change to cause you to be happier. Of course, if you understand choice theory, you know all this reasoning is smoke and mirrors. You are choosing your emotion to control others, and if then subsequently they choose guilt, they are doing that for their own reasons. You really can't control anyone else, but you can create an environment where you are likely to get the response you want. Instead of using your emotions to control others, you can use a two-step process to more authentic interactions. First, recognize and name the feeling you're experiencing. Then ask yourself, what is it you want that you're trying to get with, insert, name of the emotion? Be as honest as you can with yourself. When you realize what you're trying to get, you often need to have a conversation with yourself about whether this is what you should be pursuing. The answer is typically some version of, I'm trying to get this person to do something they don't want to do, mainly because I know it's best for them or for me. I don't care who you are, unless you're dealing with a small child in physical danger or an adult without the mental capacity to make decisions for themselves. We don't have the right to convince guilt and manipulate people into doing what we think is best. This is often the biggest source of misery for both ourselves and others. They are miserable because you're controlling them. You'll be miserable because you may have gotten what you wanted in the moment, but you have done damage to your relationship and will rarely have someone cheerfully doing the things you want. They're only doing it under duress. Of course, it's possible for you to use your words, providing information the person may not have been aware of. It's up to the individual how they value and use this information. It may be exactly what they need to decide to do what you want. This is fine, but using your emotions to control others is not. Number five, importance. Misery, albeit subconsciously, shows others how important the loss was to you. People often judge the magnitude of the loss by how hard and long a person grieves. This can be dreadful because if this is your motivation to show people the depth of your pain, you could be sentencing yourself to a life of mourning the loss. I often see parents who lose a child fall prey to this level of misery. I can't imagine a grief any worse than the loss of a child, no matter the age. But there is no child anywhere that would want to sentence their parents to a life ever after of mourning. Of all people, children would want their parents to live, really live, to soak up all the life they can since theirs was cut short. After my husband died, my mother-in-law grieved. She grieved hard and never stopped not one moment for the rest of her life. It was so sad watching her, but she just didn't know how to live in a world where her son was missing. Contrast that with the woman I greatly admire, April McElroy, who lost her 16-year-old son, Sandro, to a tragic skateboarding accident. Instead of creating a life of grief, she has embraced the slogan, Live Like Sandro, 
and has been befriending his friends, having celebration of life and trying to help other people who are in similar situations. Instead of a large part of her dying with her son, she's choosing to embrace life as he did, as her testimonial to how much he meant to her. Everyone needs to choose their own path. And if misery is your choice, just be conscious about why you are doing it. You need others to know how deeply you've been affected by the loss. That's okay. I'm just saying there may be other ways to accomplish that objective without locking yourself in a grief prison of your own making. Number six is freedom. Grief can help free you from certain responsibilities or obligations. When you're distraught, those around you often give you a pass on things you would normally be expected to do. This could be tied to number three and getting help, but the difference is that in three, the tasks actually get done. In this case, you may be using misery to just avoid the responsibilities you have that you no longer want to fulfill. If you are responsible to a job, your children, or even your own personal hygiene, misery can be a great excuse. People won't necessarily expect you to get out of bed, go to work, or take care of your children if grief and misery have you in their grip. If this is you and you need a break from certain responsibilities, create that break without the drama of the painful emotions. Unapologetically take the break you need in a responsible way. Number seven, space. Misery can slow life down for you, giving you the time and space you need to figure out your next step. This can be your motivation when life becomes overwhelming and you don't know how to fix things. You can't see any light at the end of your proverbial tunnel, or you have so many choices and have fallen victim to analysis paralysis when you can't seem to make a decision. Misery, particularly depression, can help you slow life down enough that you can process your options and make a plan. This can be effective if your depression doesn't become severe. With severe depression, you have the zero energy even for thinking. If you want to skip or shorten this depressive period, write down all your options and start jotting down pros and cons, but give yourself a time limit. Once you've reached that deadline, then make your decision. Take solace in the fact that few decisions cannot be reversed or course corrected. I also love to lean into the idea of balance. I know that whatever I decide will all have equal positive and negative attached to it. So as far as pros and cons, I know that even if I can't anticipate all of them, they will ultimately balance out, so I am free to choose the choice with the greatest appeal for me. Eight is connection. Misery can bond you to others who are feeling the same way, creating a shared experience. This option speaks to the adage of misery loves company. Whenever people find themselves with a common threat or enemy, it becomes easy to create common misery to connect you to others. You are all going through similar circumstances, so you can spend your time with a lot of ain't it awful talk. I was recently working with a client who was complaining about the relationship she had with her sister. I was responding to her by challenging her perceptions and expectations of her sister. She was surprised by that and said, whenever I tell my friends about the horrible things my sister has done to me, they all agree and commiserate. But you're actually helping me to see that the problem isn't my sister it's that I've been expecting her to be a person she may be incapable of being. This is so helpful. I tell you this story to say that if you want to stay steeped in misery, go ahead with this path. You will actually feel better in your misery because you have connection with others who are feeling the same way. You'll know you're not alone. 
However, you can skip the misery if you realize you have a choice in how you perceive things. You can get in touch with your reason for staying in the situation everyone is complaining about. Let's pretend it's a boss who's acting unfairly. Why haven't you left? There's a reason. You want the retirement benefits? You actually love the work you do? Your coworkers are your friends and you don't want to leave them behind? There could be any number of reasons, but recognize your reason for staying and focus on the benefits rather than the drawbacks. Muster up appreciation and gratitude for the reasons you stay instead of steeping yourself in misery. Number nine is safety. In severe cases, sometimes misery takes the form of depression to keep you safe. This refers to time when aggression, homicide, and suicide are on the table. Our subconscious mind can be extremely creative. When I was trained to answer a suicide hotline back in the late 70s, we were taught that the most dangerous time for suicidal people is when the depression starts to lift. Why? Because they'll finally have clarity of thought and enough energy to carry out their pain. This is one time when I actually think misery is the best option. I don't want to leave you in misery, however, because that's not a great place to be. It's important for you to understand why you're choosing this and do some talk therapy to help get at the root cause of what's causing your pain. Number 10 is habit. Sometimes your misery isn't working for you at all, but you keep doing it because it's just a habit. There's times when misery has stopped providing the benefit we got from it initially, but we continue with it because we don't know what else to do. We've had the experience of it working before, so we simply keep doing it, hoping for a better response because it's our habit. The best thing to do in this case is recognize your misery no longer serves you in any way and find a new behavior that will be more effective. Of course, the purpose of your misery is not consciously known to you. It is within the machinations of your subconscious mind. But if you can let go of any defensiveness and honestly look at what you're using your emotions to accomplish, then you can be free to create new, more effective and responsible behaviors to get what you want, or you can also change what you want. If you're a helping professional working with clients who can't seem to let go of their misery, help them understand that as painful as it is, their misery is serving them in some way. When they're able to accept that there's benefit to their misery, they can make the conscious decision about whether misery is their best option. Dr. Glasser said, It's almost impossible for anyone, even the most ineffective among us, to continue to choose misery after becoming aware that it is a choice. If you would like to learn more about choice theory psychology, consider taking a basic intensive training leading towards certification. Check it out at www choicetheorycentral.com. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and that you'll join us next week for something very special I have planned. Those of you who have been following my podcast know that I speak about a variety of topics that I change each month. This podcast wraps up April and May's focus is going to be on diversity and inclusion. I'm going to change the typical format of the show for May to panel discussions. I will be talking with various marginalized groups about what life is like for them, some challenges they've encountered, and the advice they would have for allies wanting to support. Next week, I'll be talking with a panel of women from different generations about the inequities for women in the workplace and the Me Too movement. I never believe that there are topics that shouldn't be talked about, especially if the topic is confusing or if you find you can't understand the viewpoint of a particular group. 
It's my goal to create a safe space for people to learn information about groups they may not have the opportunity to have these conversations with. If you struggle to understand the challenges women have in the workplace or don't understand their need to protest sexual inappropriateness and sexual aggression by their male counterparts, please tune in. I'm really looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.